early uh, this week. The big news story, as you may have noticed or heard about, was the cryptocurrency company, FTX, that lost like 30-some billion dollars overnight and went into the red, completely bankrupt. And there was a lot of conversation about that, which, you know, I'm not an economics expert, but seems like maybe a cautionary tale about the reliability of cryptocurrency, maybe. And again, not an expert, but it seems to me that most of our currency is more or less crypto, right? Like outside of the actual cash that might be in our pocket or in our piggy bank jar at home, aren't all of our accounts and our uh, bank accounts, our investments, all that, whatever we have, isn't it all just like numbers held electronically somewhere? <laughs> Does it actually exist? Does that give you the crypto creeps like it does me? Our money is basically invisible, stored up potential financial energy held who knows where. Some of us have a lot of invisible, stored up potential economic energy. Some have less, others have none at all. And it occurs to me that there's something about, there's some lesson about life here, that life is also invisible, stored up potential energy. Love is invisible, stored up potential energy. And maybe that's why Jesus said that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Which is striking that he didn't say wherever your heart is, there your treasure. No, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, because it seems they are so closely related. Did you know that Jesus talked more about money than almost anything else? He talked most about the kingdom of God. He talked most about love and what it means to know God's love and share God's love. But the examples that he used, more often than not, more than anything else, happen to be economic examples or allusions or metaphors, which is striking given that Jesus, as far as we know, didn't have much or any money of his own. Maybe he used money so often as a teaching illustration because he knew money hits us where we live. It drives so much in our world. So much of our world and our life is driven by economics, and it also reveals what drives us, where our heart, is, where our heart is, what, what is most important to us. If we want to know what's most important to us, according to this lesson of Jesus, all we need to do is look at our bank statement or our credit card statement to see what we truly value in life. And when I look at my statements, apparently what I value most is our house and, and all of our many expenses that go with uh, our house and our housing. That is what consumes most of our invisible store of electronic money wherever it happens to be, just sucks it right out of the account. Our second most expensive budget item is our aging dog, <laughs> clearly. I'm kidding, Maybe he's not second. He's up there, but 
Second is probably college. And then third is the aging. <laughs> I don't know. He's expensive, but we love him. Last Sunday during the uh, congregational meeting, it was pointed out, rightly, that here at Virginia Highland Church, we don't talk a lot about money or about stewardship other than when it pops up in worship. And maybe that is something we ought to change. Like, you know, sure, Jesus talked a lot about money, but we've decided to just sort of edit that out. And as the person who does the most talking around here, I am probably the most to blame for that, and maybe that's something we could think differently about, not only for the good of our mission as a church and for our strategic plan, our vision plan, which we just voted into existence last week, but also for our individual good. I mean, it would be awful if our invisible, stored-up potential economic energy didn't get shared and put to good use by the end of our lives when we make our great transition. And that reminds me of a story about a man who every paycheck for his entire career took $50 out of his paycheck and put it in a box that he kept under his bed and did this for his entire career. And when he got to the end of his life and he was on his deathbed dying, he said to his husband, honey, I want you to promise me one thing when I'm gone. And his husband said, sure, anything. He said, I want you to promise me that you'll take the money that's in the box under the bed and put it in the casket so I can take it with me. And at that time, there was something like $50,000 in the box. And so the husband agreed and, and, and kept his promise. When his partner died, he took all that money, the $50,000, he took it to the bank and deposited it and wrote a check for $50,000 and put it in the casket. <laughs> May it not happen to you. Ten years ago, I was uh, sitting with my son, Camden, at McDonald's. He, he wanted a snack, we were out and about, and so we stopped in to get some French fries and ordered the fries, got them, we went to the table, sat down, and, and I proceeded to do what fathers have done since the beginning of time, or at least the beginning of McDonald's, I reached over and took one, and he slapped my hand. He said, Dad, those French fries are mine. I said, oh, really? Who drove you here? Who ordered the fries? Who paid for the fries? Who even carried them to the table? Now, I could have gone on and said, to whom do you owe your entire existence? Well, I didn't go quite that far. So he, he handed over a few, like, crusty little measly fries he wasn't going to eat anyway, sort of begrudgingly. But <laughs> that's a parable, right? Like, isn't that sort of how we are toward God with our blessings and our giving? Don't we sometimes fall into the trap of giving leftovers? After we pay for everything else, mortgage, utilities, food, transportation, insurance, internet, cell phone, health club, sports for kids, activities, vacation, the college funds, the investments, taxes, then we'll give from whatever is left over if there is anything left over. If giving leftovers is your inclination, your 
temptation, your MO, as it is mine often, maybe we've gotten something out of alignment. Maybe we've forgotten who gave us our fries. Maybe we could start with our giving relative to our income and then structure the rest of our lives around that. What would that, what would did that? In other words, we could think of tithing, giving 10% of our income as the biblical structure for how to handle our surplus, our extra, our leftovers, or we could start with the tithe and then structure the rest of our livelihood and lifestyle around that. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, once said, earn what you can, save all you can, give all you can. Earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And Wesley apparently practiced what he preached. As a student at Oxford, he lived on 28 pounds. He earned 30 pounds and gave away two pounds. As his earnings increased with his first pastorate, he continued to live on the same 28 pounds. Later in life, when he was earning 120 pounds, he gave away 92 pounds and still lived on 28 pounds. I guess there was no inflation back then, or he just ate less and less as he got older. I'm not sure. Anyway, Wesley told his people that if when he died he had more than 10 pounds to his name, they could call him a robber. Giving statistics show that those who have the least often end up giving the most, while those who have the most end up giving the least on a percentage basis, right? which is counterintuitive. We would think that those who have the most proportionally would give more than those who have the least to give. Why is that? Well, it's believed that those who have the least tend to live among others who don't have very much either, among a community where people are just a paycheck away from the bottom dropping out and are more likely to chip in to help their neighbors because they are very familiar with that kind of critical financial situation. Those who have the least are more likely to give on a proportional level than those who have the most. And that's sort of where we are in our scripture passage. In our scripture, Jeremiah envisions the people who have gone through destruction and, and, and seen their country destroyed. They've been marched into exile in Babylon where they're serving as slaves. They are completely destitute. And Jeremiah has this very positive, hopeful vision of their future, of future prosperity, of future abundance, of future blessing. And he's worried. You would think that with a vision like that, given the state that they're in, this would be something to celebrate. But instead, in the next breath, Jeremiah calls for people to volunteer to be shepherds, to be leaders who do justice and who do righteousness so that all that prosperity that's coming is not squandered on the wrong things. So that people's focus will be on God and on the things that really matter, the things that last. Now, compared to anyone back then, whether they were rich or poor, a peasant or a king, we live in a far more privileged time. Our food, 
basically comes to us, if we're shopping at the grocery store, already plucked, grown, cleaned, packaged, ready to eat. If we need clean water, we just turn on the tap. If we need information, news, entertainment, news entertainment, that's just right at our fingertips. With a few clicks, we can get almost anything to our doorstep. If we have Amazon Prime, we can even get it maybe in an hour. In fact, I think the next step for Amazon is that they're going to send us things that we didn't know we needed until we got it. And they'll have already removed the money from it and we'll be grateful. Last week, I was in Starbucks. And before long, I had to go to the bathroom because that's what happens when you go to Starbucks, right? You get the coffee and then eventually you have to go to the bathroom. And so I was standing in the bathroom, the door closed behind me, and I actually waited for the lights to just pop on for me. I mean, isn't that how it's supposed to work? And I actually sort of sighed, a little bit frustrated that I had to like reach over and on the wall and find the switch and turn it on all by myself. <laughs> like, isn't that pathetic? I mean, we've gotten to this place maybe of entitlement where we expect things to just happen for us without any involvement or investment. And that's the problem with affluence or just living in an affluent culture if we ourselves are not affluent. The problem with affluence and living in an affluent culture is that it's not wrong to have money. The problem is material abundance quickly leads to spiritual amnesia. That's Jeremiah's core message here, that material abundance quickly leads to spiritual amnesia. And what makes Christians different is, is not that we don't have a savings account or a checking account or we don't put something away for retirement or for our kids' education. It's that true savings is spiritual, not physical because money is actually spiritual. As I said earlier, it's definitely not physical. It says something about our heart. It is a reflection of our heart and our life. Similarly, Jesus calls us not to an abundant life, or to an abundant life, not to a life of abundance. An abundant life is not necessarily a life of abundance. And that might be scary until we discover or just get a taste of the fact that the abundance, the spiritual abundance that God calls us to is actually more than we ever thought possible on the spiritual level. A wise woman once said, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. Playing small does not serve the world. We were born, she says, to manifest the abundant glory of God within us. Amen? Ashe, namaste. Namaste.